Good morning. It's good to see you this, this morning. Um, I'm excited about what we're going to study. Are you excited? All right, praise God, praise God. We're going to sing our song, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. But before we sing it, we want to pray. Is that okay? Let's ask God for special help. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you for your, your beauty and your holiness, for your goodness that you give to us every day. Your mercies are new every morning. And as I think about it, Father, I, I, I am just so grateful that you've allowed us this opportunity to study in peace to give us the opportunity to anchor ourselves deeper in the Word of God. Now, Father, I pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. I pray, Father, that you give us thoughts and feelings that reflect your own. And I pray that you be glorified in all of this. We love you, Lord. We ask that you teach us to love you more than anything else in this world. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. So our series has been the glorious holy mountain. Today's specific subject matter is the early rain. Now as I told you, we're not covering the half of what we could have covered in the longer period of time. But for the sake of continuing forward and carrying over the clearer, more heavy principles that we're trying to cover, we're going to move forward today talking about the early rain. Before we go there, I do need to remind us of some basic principles in regards to our Bible study. So Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. Are you ready? You should know by heart now, right? Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. And when you have it, just say amen. You have it already. You're faster than me. All right. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done, is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. You guys are ready. I, I like it. You guys sound good. Again, just reminding us the thing that hath been. What is that? What is that? Past. The thing that shall be. What is that? The thing that is done. What is that? That's present. That's now. So if you want to understand the future, you must go back and study the past. If you want to understand the present, you must go back and study the what? The past. There's nothing new under the sun. In fact, again, adding to this principle, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse number 15. Notice here what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15. The Bible says, that which hath been. What is hath been? Past. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is what? Past. 
Again, very simple concept, very simple principle that when we're studying the Bible, when we're looking to understand how God operates, all we have to do is go back and look at how he has operated in the past. What has God required in the past? And if we can learn those simple principles, it will carry us in the crisis and the troubles that are right ahead of us, my friends. Very simple concept. Again, adding to this principle because we've already gone over it, but let's read Education 190 and the second paragraph. Please notice what it says. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole and see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and learn to trace their workings through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. I asked you yesterday, what is the great consummation? It's the second coming. So I should be able, when I study the Bible, or when I look at history, I should be able to see two principles that are contending, that are fighting, and I should be able to trace it from the beginning of time all the way down to the second coming. And as I'm studying the Word of God, God is going to make it plain to me which side I'm on. He should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, how in every act of life, he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. What does antagonistic mean? They're against each other. They're not working together. There's no harmony between the two principles. There's no working together for time. There is an antagonistic idea or principles against each other that you will see throughout all earth's history. How in every act of life he reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives and how whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. So I want to ask you a question, a very simple question. Is it possible, is it possible to be neutral in this controversy? It's not possible. There's no neutrality in this war that we're in. For my friends, even though you may not see it with guns and machetes and bullets or whatnot, we are in a spiritual warfare. When you woke up this morning, there was a debate whether or not you should be awoken. When you got up this morning, there's a controversy. The devil said, no, they do not deserve to arise for another day. And God said, no, let them wake up. Let them wake up. There's more they must learn. There's more that they must understand. There's more of my love that they must experience. No, allow them to arise. There is no neutral party. There is no time out. You're making a decision moment by moment. I want to read this very interesting quotation to you, and I want you to pay close attention to it, for if you begin to understand these simple principles, again, we'll be ready for the crisis that is soon to break upon us. It says, the great outpouring of the Spirit of God, which lightens the whole earth with his glory, will not come. Will not come. Now, if the sentence stopped there, that would be bad, right? Will not come unless there's a condition. I wonder what the condition is. Will not come until we have what, my friends? And enlighten people that know by experience what it means to be co-laborers together with God. 
when we have entire, wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by an outpouring of His Spirit without measure. Now, pause for a moment. I want you to think. I like to think when I read things. I don't like to run quickly by quotations. There is something strange about this quotation. Do you know what it is? Let me ask you a question. Let me just ask you this. In this room right now, do you think the Holy Spirit is being poured out without measure? I would say no, my friends. In this room right now, the Holy Spirit is not being poured out without measure and If that's the case, notice the conditions that are necessary for the Spirit to be poured out without measure. When we have what? Entire, wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ. So that tells me that even in this room right now, the people of God are not holy and entirely on the side of Christ. Because if it were so, God would recognize the fact by a great outpouring of his spirit without measure. Now, what does it mean without measure? I mean, he's not, it's not like, okay, you get uh, two ounces or you got a cup. Yeah, that's measurement. You understand? God wants to pour out his spirit without measure. Yes, his spirit is being poured out in the room right now. But it's not without measure. So you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, what is it? that is hindering us from being wholeheartedly committed to the service of Christ? What is hindering us from being connected to the Spirit of God so that He could trust us with such a wonderful gift? We must ask ourselves these questions. It says, but this will not be while the largest portion of the church are not laborers together with God. So as the larger portion of the church is not linking up with God, that is not connected with God, God says, I cannot pour out my spirit no matter how much I want to until I have a church, a body that is ready to receive the outpouring of the spirit of God. There must be an enlightened people. So today my goal is to help us become somewhat more enlightened in regards to this plan of salvation of how God wants to pour out his spirit into these temples. Going on to say God cannot pour out his spirit when selfishness and self-indulgence are so manifest, when a spirit prevails that if put into words would express that answer of Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Now, this is just a foundation as we begin to lay out our study. What is our acronym, my friends? What is our acronym? Temple. What does the T represent? The presence. Very good. What does the E represent? Execution of judgment. What does the M represent, my friends? Major executioner or main executioner. What does the P represent? Presence departs. And the L, what does the L represent? Last remedy. And the E represents what, my friends? There's an expected gathering. Again, this simple framework gives us direction in our study. Notice now, we talked about Solomon's temple. What in Solomon's temple signified the presence of God? What was it? It was a cloud. A cloud. The presence of God entered into the temple, and the priests were not able to minister in that particular temple. Is that right? So we looked at a couple of verses highlighting that. We saw that even when Moses had built his sanctuary, that the presence of God entered into that temple, and Moses himself was not able to enter into that temple. Execution of judgment. Why would God have to execute judgment 
on Solomon's temple. What do we look at? What do we see? What, what were the things that Israel had done that God said, I cannot, I can't live here anymore. I got to go. What did they do? Idolatry, big time, big time idolatry. Place right there where the altar of sacrifice was supposed to be was this image of jealousy provoking unto jealousy. What else did the people of God do that provoked God to say, I can't live here anymore? What was that? Say it again louder. They were hypocrites, no question about it. Definitely hypocrites. They didn't listen to the prophets. Again, we highlighted that that's not a new problem. That's an old problem, right? So they would not listen to the prophets. They built idols. They broke the Sabbath. I didn't even talk about this yesterday, but they intermarried. They married of denominations or groups that were not of their belief system. And God said, and if you go look in Ezra, I believe it's the ninth chapter, Ezra is plucking out his beard because the people of God are intermarrying. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah is so upset <laughs> that he, he says, look, If you guys don't get your act together, I'm going to smite you in your head. I don't believe in reforms like that. Amen? I don't believe in reforms like that. But Nehemiah was very serious about it. And he was saying, look, we are compromising in our marriage relations, which has brought the curses of God upon us. So these various points are brought out why God had to execute judgment. Who is the major or main executioner brought against the chosen people of God? Who's the main executioner? Babylon, from what direction do they come? I don't know if you guys are excellent students. I, I'm, this is amazing. This is amazing. So the main executioner is Babylon. They come from the north. Where does God's presence go? Very good. It goes to the East Mountain. Very good. God's presence departs, lifts up, and goes on the East Mountain. Now, when God's presence leaves... The place is left desolate. Whether an enemy soldier comes in and knocks it down or not, if God leaves it, it's already desolate. Does that make sense, everybody? All right. The last remedy is the scattering or the shaking. And the expected gathering, again, I didn't get to highlight this, but the expected gathering is the people of God coming back to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That being said, notice the next slide here. We have a remnant. Seventy years are determined for this group of people that they're supposed to be in captivity. At the end of the 70 years, a remnant is developed to go back and restore and rebuild the temple. Keep it in mind. This remnant that is developed restores and rebuilds the temple after 70 years. So 536 is the first decree to rebuild, and 457 is the official decree to restore and rebuild. We can go to a whole study on that, but I won't do that right now. The northern power, and I just want to put this on the screen so you can see on the map the northern power. 900, at least 999 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is called the pleasant land. There's Babylon. Babylon is called the king of the north. Keep it in mind. Babylon is called the king of the north, and Jerusalem is called the pleasant land. Do you know that right now, I've just carried you all the way down to end time prophecy, and you have no idea that we just did that. I just walked you through Daniel 11, verse 40 to 45, just now, king of the north, enters into the pleasant land. Uh Uh-huh, did you pay attention? This system repeats itself over and over again. There's absolutely nothing new under the sun. It's fascinating to me. I I just, every time I open the Bible and I get time to get it in, 
I like to spend six to eight hours when I can in a block. It's like a job. I like it. I like getting in there and just digging it out. I don't get to do it often like that eight hours in. But I like to get it in because what happens is when your mind starts to, to be in the Word of God, God seems to wrap his brain around your brain. He starts giving you things that you don't get because you're studying, but he gives it to you because he's revealing it. It's in a relationship that he starts giving you this stuff. It's just beautiful. But anyway, let's go a little further. We talked about Herod's temple yesterday. Now, Herod's temple is quite interesting. How did God symbolize or show that his presence was in Herod's temple? What did he do? That's Haggai chapter 2. The desire of nations would come in. The second temple would be more glorious than the first temple because the second temple had the manifestation of Jesus in human form. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he, had, he put on my flesh. He walked in my body. He dealt with my problems, my issues. And in every point, he overcame in every single solitary point of temptation. So he walks in human flesh amongst us. And in this time, when God's presence is in that temple, there's an issue that begins to develop. And we touched on it last night, but I didn't broaden it and break it down like I wanted to. We'll go a little deeper right now. When he enters into that temple, what was the response of the people to the glory of God? What was their response? Open your Bibles. Go to John. You know this very well. We're going to read it together. We're studying together this morning. John, the third chapter. And everybody knows John 3.16. Is that right? You better know it, amen. Even heathens know that verse. John chapter 3, verse 16, notice what the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what, my friends? Well, watch verse 17. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now watch verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were what, my friends? Mind you now, remember Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Bible says in John 1 verse 4, his life was the light. So here it is, mankind living in sin, mankind loving their dark deeds, and here comes a bright light. You ever seen roaches? Sad to say in my youth, you know, I, I kept my parents to the fire in regards to the Sabbath. What they would try to do on Sabbath is make me wash dishes. So I told my parents one time, I said, Mom, Dad, listen, you tell me we're supposed to keep the Sabbath, but we're not supposed to be doing any work on the Sabbath. So I shouldn't be washing dishes on the Sabbath. That's what I told them. So they didn't let me wash dishes that day. We went to AY, came back in the kitchen. I promise you, there had to be a thousand roaches in there. They were everywhere, eating everything. But as soon as we turned on the lights, you know what the roaches started to do? They started to run. They try to go to a dark corner. And this is what happens when humanity meets God. When they meet Jesus in human form, he walks in flesh, he steps out, and all of us sinful creatures start going. We don't want to see it. 
And in fact, instead of making reformation or making change or repenting, what we try to do, we try to put out the light. Did you hear what I said? We try to shut the light off, shut it off. I don't want to see my bad deeds. I don't want to know how bad I am. I'm a good person. I, told, I tell everybody, no good person is going to heaven. Only save people. Only save people. Good people aren't going. Nice people aren't going. Only saved people are going to heaven. And you're only saved when you come to the realization of how dark and how deep and how evil your heart is. Not how deep and how dark and how evil your neighbor is or your husband and your wife or your child or the conference or some other person. No, how dark is your heart? And I dare you to look at it. And I, I promise you, don't look at your heart without Jesus. Because if you look at your heart without Jesus, you're going to commit suicide. You look at your heart without Jesus, you're going to go insane. I promise you, if you look at your heart without Jesus. But the Bible says in Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there be any what? Wicked way inside of me. And lead me in the way everlasting. God must take you by the hand, and he must walk you through the recesses of your own heart. And he's going to put some light on those dark things, my friends. But when he puts the light on the dark things, don't run away from him because he's the only solution to the problem of your deep, dark, secret, perverted heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Let me describe for you what desperately is. I don't know if you know what desperately is, but I'll tell you what desperately is. It's as if you were in Sodom and Gomorrah. Two angels walk through the gates of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot meets them at the gate, and there are other men sitting at the gate as well. They see these strangers walk to Lot's house. Lot enters into his house. He's having a conversation with, remind you now, angels. The men of the city come to the door, and they begin to knock on the door. Lot, send us out those men that we may know them. Lot comes out, tries to have a reasonable conversation. Lot himself, perverted by the city himself, offers his daughters... The men said, if you don't get out of our way, Lot, we're going we're gonna to rape you, brother. The angels of God hear what's going on, pull Lot inside. Remember, we're talking about desperately wicked. Pull Lot inside the house, blind the men, and the Bible says that the men were still groping for the door. Blinded, but still in their avarice, in their great, deep, dark, secret recesses of their heart, they're still groping for the door to get at these angels. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. You say the homosexual is bad, I say no, you're worse than a homosexual. You say that transvestite is horrible, no, no, no. Every Christian that looks like a Christian but is really deep, dark, in deep down inside, not a Christian, not having the Holy Ghost, is worse than a man that knows that he's a homosexual, knows that he's lost, knows that he's in a lost position, while we play a game in church every single Saturday, every Wednesday, acting like we're okay with God when we're not. We're just as bad. We're just as broken. And we need God to do a supernatural work inside of us. That's what we need. Because Christians are not simply human. <laughs> We're not. Notice now, I'm highlighting now this issue. The light has come into the world. The presence of God is there. Now the people want to kill or execute or destroy this light. So God has to execute judgment. 
Now, we talked about this. They are playing hypocrisy. But there's a one point that I did not highlight, though I mentioned yesterday, that I want to make sure we walk away with this morning. In Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse number 41, please pay close attention to what we're looking at. Luke 19, verse 41, please notice here what the Bible says. The Bible says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou had known even thou at least in this thy day the thing which belongeth to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on how many sides, my friends? And shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the what? The time of their visitation. So I don't have my board, and I don't even think I put the next slide up here. Let me see if I did. No. On my board, I would write for you the 70-week the prophecy. If I, if I had it, I'll write 457, then I'll put the 408, then I'll take it from 408 to uh, 27, and then I'll take that last week of time, 27 AD, all the way to 34 AD is the time of visitation. This is when the Messiah comes on the scene and begins his public ministry, and there was a specific time that prophecy gave to the Jewish nation to know when they were going to be visited. But they did not know the time. Now, that's strange to me because the time was in the Bible. Is that right? The time was there for them to know when the visitor was coming. But they did not know the time. And because they did not know the time and accept the reality of that Savior, they were lost in their sins. And we made the correlation last night that the Laodicean church has a visitor knocking at the door. Is that right? I wonder if you know the time of your visitation. Notice still, who is the main executioner, pay attention now, who is the main executioner that comes and implements execution on Herod's temple? Notice what the Bible says, Daniel chapter 8, look at verse number 9. Daniel 8 verse 9, I'm going to hit this point, then I need to move very, very rapidly. Daniel 8 verse 9, it says, and out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great towards the south and toward the east and towards the pleasant land. So if the power is waxing towards the south and is waxing towards the east, from what direction does this power come? Northwest. Do you understand what we just did? So there's a northwestern power that's coming against Herod's temple. Please notice. Here's the map. Here is Rome. You see Rome? You see Rome right there? You see Jerusalem? Jerusalem's right there. Jerusalem, if you see Jerusalem, northwest of Jerusalem is pagan Rome. Do you see that, everybody? Notice what the Bible says in Luke. Let me go back for a moment. Notice what the Bible says in Luke, chapter 21. Luke 21, and look at verse number 20. Notice what the Bible says. 
It says, and when ye shall see Jerusalem come past with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is what, my friends? What army came and surrounded Jerusalem? What army did that? Pagan Rome. A northern power came to punish the people of God and scatter them abroad. Now pay attention to this. And I'm going to move rapidly to the next parts. God presses the parts. Jesus goes and sits on the Mount of Olives. The last remedy is the scattering of the church, both at 34 AD and also in AD 70. And then there's an expected gathering. Now, you need to move in a spiritual realm right now, for I've been moving in a very concrete manner. In other words, I've been looking at a literal physical temple in Solomon's temple. I've been looking at a very literal physical temple in Herod's temple. But question. If the physical temple is destroyed, what would be the next temple that the people of God are supposed to gather around? It would have to be the heavenly sanctuary. Is that right? Now, remember, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and he tells them something. And I want us to look at it. I want us to go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're studying right now, okay? We're moving now from these literal concrete temples, these buildings, We're moving now to a spiritual application of the temple processes. In John chapter 14, verse number 15, the Bible says, If ye love me, do what, my friends? Keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you. How long? How long is he supposed to abide with you? Forever. Watch carefully. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive... Because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Question, shall be. Is that past, present, or future? Pay attention. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit's been with you, just like he's been with us. But there's a point in time which the Holy Spirit is going to be inside of you. I'm going to ask you a very personal question. You need to answer this question. Is the Holy Spirit inside of you? Don't answer out loud. It's different from the Holy Spirit encouraging you and motivating you and speaking to you. Don't do this. Don't do that. I'm asking you a question right now, and I want you to be very honest with you and your God. Is the Spirit of God living inside of you? Because here, Jesus says to his disciples, as if to tell them, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he's not inside you right now. At some point in the future, he will be inside of you. Pay close attention. Because remember the first quotation I shared with you today? That the people of God must know by experience what it means to cooperate with God. There is a cooperation. There is an understanding that we have to enter into if we're going to receive an outpouring of God's Spirit. Notice what else the Bible says. We're still looking in the same chapter, verse number 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, Yet, but ye see me because I live, ye live also. At that day. Ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and what? I in you. Very interesting language. At that day, what day? The day that Jesus goes before his Father, the Father accepts the sacrifice that he's given, and then in that moment of time, as that acceptance is given, you're going to know the reality of that experience that I'm having with my Father in heaven. 
at that day when the Spirit is poured out on you, inside of you. Now notice what the Bible says going forward in John chapter 16 and verse number 7. John 16 and verse number 7. Please notice here what the Bible says. Oh, I love this, my friends. Watch this. It says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of what, my friends? Of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Why would the Holy Spirit be sent to do this? Because it says, of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So deep. That's so deep. Can't even break that down right now. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear it now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever ye shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you what, my friends? He will show you things to come. So what are the three jobs, based on this verse, what are the three jobs that the Holy Spirit has to do? He's going to convict the world of what? Sin and of what? Righteousness and of what, my friends? So let me ask you a question. When we pray for the Holy Spirit, what's the first thing that we're going to feel? Are we going to feel excited? Uh-uh. Now that the Holy Spirit's doing his job, the first job of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of the reality of our brokenness. We will not always feel good when the Spirit of God comes upon us because he has to tell us what the deal is. He has to let us know the condition because if the doctor never tells you their true condition, he can never give you the real reality of the solution to your problem. Does that make sense, everybody? But remember, the Holy Spirit is not yet in them. He's around them. At a point in future, he will be inside of them, but he's not yet inside of them. Notice again, Jesus speaking, and I didn't put it up here. Let's go to Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. I didn't put it here. But I think we should go here. Luke chapter 24. And watch carefully. And right now, we're under the T of the holy place experience. Watch carefully. We're studying right now. Luke chapter 24, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 44. The Bible says, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which was written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. I, I want to ask you a question. How many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you from the Old Testament alone can prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I wonder what that Bible study was like that Jesus broke out. You know, Jesus didn't just step up and say, look, look at my wounds in my hands. I'm the Messiah. No, Jesus said, I'm the Messiah. Now, let me prove it to you from the Bible. That must have been an amazing Bible study. It goes on to say in verse 46, and he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning where, my friends? At Jerusalem. And ye are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So please lock this in your mind. The people of God were to tarry in Jerusalem. Though they are tarrying in physical Jerusalem, 
by faith they are following Jesus into the heavenly sanctuary. Listen to me now. They are staying in physical Jerusalem, but by faith they're following Jesus into the heavenly sanctuary. What is happening in heaven that they're waiting for? Oh, I wish I could do Revelation chapter 4 with you in Revelation chapter 5. I wish I could break that down right now. Do you know in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it is actually the inauguration of Jesus into the high priestly work in the heavenly sanctuary? Do you not in Revelation chapter 5, did you know that in Revelation chapter 5, it actually tells you the outpouring of the Spirit took place in Revelation chapter 5? Did you know that? I don't have time to break it down. I mean, once you do it, it is absolutely fascinating and absolutely beautiful. But because for the sake of time, I will go a different route to get to the same point. Go with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse number 4. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. The Bible says, And being assembled together with, with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? I'm sorry, what is the promise of the Father? The Holy Spirit. That is the promise of the Father. Watch. Verse 5. For John truly baptized with water... But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So they're waiting for the promise, which is the Holy what? The Holy Spirit. Okay? Stay with me, my friends. Acts chapter 2. Remember, Jesus said, at that day, the Holy Spirit is with you, but at that day, he will be where? Where is he going to be? Okay. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. It says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and set upon each of them. And they were all what, my friends? That's interesting. So no longer is the Holy Spirit just with them, but the Holy Spirit's inside of them. Now I'm going to take you to a Bible verse. You probably read it before. Hold your hand in Acts. We're coming right back to Acts. I want you to go to Psalms 133, please. Go to Psalms 133. Psalms 133. Psalms 133, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 1. Notice here what the Bible says. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together. How, my friends? In unity. It is like, what is it like? It is like what? It is like the precious oil. Question, all you are Bible scholars, I know you are, I know you've been studying a long time. In the Bible, what is oil a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. So unity is like oil. What, what did the oil do? It is like oil, the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even whose beard? Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment. Question, who is Aaron? He's a high priest. 
when Aaron was anointed as high priest, it was so much oil that it ran down his beard and off of his clothes. That's a lot of oil. Is that a lot of oil? But wait, the imagery is still fascinating because it's not yet done. It says in verse number three, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Question, does dew descend? No, dew comes up out of the ground. Is that right? So the, what it's really being saying is rain, water is coming down. Wait, are you paying attention? Okay, remember there's a prophet. His name is Elijah. Anybody know Elijah? Elijah goes before King Ahab and says to King Ahab, there will be neither dew nor rain these years, but according to my what? But according to my word. Isn't that fascinating? Now, again, rain, and I didn't do the study with you yet, but rain in the Bible is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So watch the imagery again. Watch the imagery again. Okay. Unity is like oil that came down on the high priest, stripped off his clothes, turned into rain, and landed on Zion. Question. (laughs) Who is Zion? What's, What's Zion in the Bible? It's the church. Zion, in fact, if you go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel is praying for that glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain in Daniel chapter 9 is the church. He prays for the church. Zion is the church. So watch the imagery again. Unity is like oil that runs down the beard, off of Aaron's beard, off of his clothes, off the high priest's garments, and falls upon the united church. So in Acts chapter 2, when you see Jesus ascending into heaven, he is going into heaven to be anointed as our high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, he ascends into heaven. He is our high priest making intercession for us as he's anointed in heaven. His church is anointed below. Y'all not hearing this thing. Are you listening? In other words, If the church does not move with Jesus as he's doing his high priestly work, they do not receive the benefits of his high priestly ministry. So only a small group of people, only a remnant followed, because you had the 120 that followed him into the heavenly sanctuary by faith. Ephesians chapter 1 says that's how you enter into the heavenly sanctuary. You enter in by faith, as he moves into the heavenly sanctuary to begin his work in heaven, there is a direct corresponding power that the church is given as they by faith unite with Christ in his high priestly work. Now, there's another application, and we're going to deal with the latter rain in our last session. You don't want to miss that one. I I promise you, you don't want to miss that one. But understanding this point, that when Jesus moves and he's anointed, the church below receives the benefits of that anointing. In fact, I'm going to show you that the disciples knew exactly what was happening. Go back with me to the book of Acts. Go back with me to the book of Acts. Watch this now. And this is amazing because this is one of the few sermons that you know is an early rain outpouring of the Spirit sermons. And we get to go right into the middle of the sermon. All right? Look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. The Bible says... Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of that patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, 
that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption, that Jesus has God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Now watch this, and I'm going to read it real slow. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see, and what does it say? Wait a second. Wait a second. So you're telling me, you're telling me, we're reading from the Bible here, that Peter knew that the Holy Ghost was being poured out. Peter knew. He said, look, what you're seeing right now is a demonstration of the outpouring of the Spirit of God which Jesus received from his Father as he stands before the throne in heaven. That is fascinating. If Peter was able to do it then, would God's people be able to do it now? Would they know the reality of their experience and know without question there's a movement taking place in heaven, there's an anointing taking place in heaven, and the people on the earth are in direct correspondence with the movements? Let me ask you a question, because we're talking about unity, oneness. Let me ask you a question. When the disciples, before the day of Pentecost, what were the disciples doing in order to prepare to receive the outpouring of the Spirit? What were they doing? They pray. What else did they do? Oh, listen, <laughs> they prayed, but how do you come on one accord? Anybody have been married before? You've been, you've been married, husband and wife? In order to be one accord with husband and wife, what must you put aside? You got to put aside self. You got to put aside the, the, the right to ascend. I'm the husband. You do what I say, woman. <laughs> well, that, that doesn't work. I, you know, I, I don't think I've tried that, but, it, you know, even if you try, it doesn't work, I promise you. And if the wife says, I thought I told you to do that, and you did you know what the man does? Tune it out. Tune it out. It doesn't work. In order for unity, there must be a putting aside of self, desire for self-ascendancy. We're told, you go read this third chapter of the book Acts of the Apostles. The disciples, the disciples began to focus on the life and person of Jesus. They put aside all their differences. They repented for their lack of paying attention while the master was alive. And as they put these things aside, as they came together in unity, God says, oh, I recognize the fact by an outpouring of my spirit." Some of us got issues with people. I've been around what are considered present truth preachers, and I've been around those who consider themselves love preachers. Everybody got an issue with everybody, but nobody loves anybody. But everybody says that they love and they stand for the truth, but nobody really loves or stands for the truth. Do you love your enemies, my friends? Do you love your enemies that you would rather die then see them go to hellfire. There's a difference, you understand? There's a difference. Oh, they're an apostasy. Okay, now put yourself right there in front of that gun that you just aimed. Are you willing to die for them? Moses was. True reformation. He said, Father, if you must blot them out, blot me out instead. I'd rather lose my eternal life, Moses says, than to have the people of God lost. 
This is the heart of God. The heart of God says, I would rather give up eternity than to lose out on my own creation. Do you have that spirit, my friends? Someone says, I'm sick of the hypocrites in the church, so I'm going to leave the church. Really? You think that's the right way to go? When God's spirit was poured out, there was a unity amongst the brethren because they put self aside. They focused their eyes on the man Jesus, and God recognized the reality of that unity by an outpouring of his spirit. And listen, God can do that in this room. Right now, he could do it in this room. You put your arrogance aside. You put your pride aside. You give up your right to be angry. You let God put that peace and that joy in your heart. He can do it. He can do it. All right. So here's the point. The church now has power. The church has power. The high priest has been anointed. The Holy Spirit is upon the church. The church is preaching. 3,000 are baptized in a day. And Satan is afraid. Now I'm going to give you a secret right now. You need to pay attention. Satan is afraid of the power that the church has. So let's go. Why would God have to execute judgment on the church that dwells in the holy place experience? Why would God have to execute judgment on the church that is in that experience where the Holy Spirit is poured out, the church has power, even so much power that when they drop a handkerchief, somebody picks it up and they're healed? That's power, you understand? Somebody's shadow walks by, and as the shadow walks by, the shadow heals the person. That's power. Somebody lies about how much money they're going to give as a donation, the person drops dead. Mercy. You don't want to play with a church like that. The church has power. What is it that will cause the church to lose its power? Now, I want us to go somewhere very quickly before I even delve further there. Go to John chapter 12, please. In John chapter 12, and we're looking at verse 31. And you guys are very familiar with this, so it's nothing new, but I want you to pay attention to what's happening. John chapter 12, verse 31, notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Now, who's the prince of this world? Satan. When did he become the prince of this world? When Adam gave up his right as king of this planet, the Bible says in Romans 6.16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So when Adam disobeyed his loving heavenly father, he subjected his crown unto Satan. All right? Keep that in mind. So Jesus says the prince of this world has been cast out. When did this happen? Verse 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw how many men unto me? When did that happen? That's at Calvary, my friends. Oh, I want to read some things to you about Calvary today that, that blew my mind. But I want us to, before I go there, read Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 12. So the prince of this world has been cast out. When Jesus is lifted up, he's going to draw all men unto himself. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse number 10. Notice what the Bible says. It says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, 
Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of the brethren is what, my friends? Cast down. The same language, cast down, cast out. The accuser of the brethren is thrown down. The power of Christ has been given because Calvary. Now is come salvation. What year does salvation manifest itself to us? What year was that? That was 8031. 8031 is the manifestation of the power of God. 8031 is when Jesus ascended and began to apply the blood. 8031 is when strength has been given to the church. So Satan says, I must figure out a way to short-circuit the power of the church. Watch. I hope I put this up here. What's this guy's name? You got to know who this guy is? Who's this guy? Balaam. I want you to go to Numbers, the 22nd chapter, please. And in your side margin, in your side note, because we're running out of time, in your side note, what I want you to write is Revelation chapter 2. In your side note, Revelation chapter 2, I believe, is like verse number 10 and on. Talking about the church of Pergamos. But right now we're looking at Numbers chapter 22 and beginning at verse number 4. Numbers chapter 22, beginning at verse 4, the Bible says, And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that is round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of the people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people that come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the old earth, and they abide over against me. Now, what is Balak's fear? What is Balak's fear? The Israelites. If you read Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites are conquering every single place where they go. There's nobody that can stand up against the Israelites. So Balak is afraid of Israel. So what Balak does is he hires a religious power. The state goes to the church. The church gives information to the state to teach the state how to weaken the chosen people of God. Watch carefully. Verse 6. Come now, therefore, I pray thee. This is Balak speaking to Balaam. Curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure, I shall... What's that word right there, my friends? What's that word? I shall prevail. What does the word prevail mean? To overcome. If you curse them, then I'm able to overcome them. If you curse them, I'm able to overcome them. Now watch this. That we might smite them and that I might drive them out of the land. For I was that he that whom thou blessest is blessed. And he whom thou cursest is what? All right, so watch. So the issue is. Blessings and cursings. Okay, pay attention. So, of course, you know the story. Balaam at first doesn't go, but then he says, Lord, please let me go. And God says, okay, if you go, the only way you can go is that they come to you the next morning for you to go. But the men don't come to him, but he still goes. Everybody knows that? 
The donkey talks to him. You know that part of the story. He does this because he wants money and honor. Now, I want you to read Numbers chapter 23. And I think Numbers 23 and all the prophecies that Balaam gave have often been not studied. We need to actually study these prophecies. There are prophecies in here. But anyway, let's go a little further. Numbers 23, look at verse number 8. This is Balaam under inspiration. He says, How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom God has not what, my friends? Defied. We're studying right now. So Balaam's saying, I can't curse whom God has not cursed. The only way I can curse them is if God has already cursed them. Same chapter, jump down to verse number 20. Second prophecy now, in that second prophecy, notice what he says. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not, speaking about God, he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel, pay attention, the Lord his God is what, my friends? What does the verse say? Wait a second. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is what? Well, I find that fascinating. I don't know how many people are in the room, but I'm going to ask you a simple question. Israel had at least 603,000 men of war. Let's say each one had one wife. That's 1.2 million people. Let's say they had one child. That's 1.8 million people in Israel. God says when he looks at Israel, I don't see sin in 1.8 million people. I wonder if God could look in the room and say the same right now. At least 1.8 million, minimum 1.8 million. God looks, he says, I don't see sin in them. Therefore, whatever man tries to curse, when men try to curse God's people, they can't be cursed because the people are actually living within a blessing or they're actually in a state of rest under their king, who when you hear the king, there's a loud cry when he's in the midst of them. I don't think anybody's listening. But wait, there's more. Numbers chapter 25, notice what the Bible says. And again, I'm giving you an element to understand why God has to execute judgment under the holy place experience. Please notice here what the Bible says. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 25, verse 2, And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bow down to their gods. And Israel joined himself. He became one with Bel Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Okay, what has transpired? Israel was once connected to the God of the universe. Their king was that God. Nobody's able to prevail against them. But Israel now links up, leaves their God, and joins Baal. So God now is upset. He himself has to remove his presence, if you will. And now notice what happens to the people of God. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, slay everyone that 
his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought the children of the Midianites women in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, saw that Aaron the priest saw it, he rose up from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. This is a sad story. Understand what's happening though. Israel had been living in a position of blessing. Therefore, no power was able to prevail against them. When they violated the covenant, then the curses that the world wanted to put on them was able to come upon them because they had removed themselves from their protective covenant that God had made with them. Do you understand that? Okay, so now watch this next quotation and notice how inspiration lays it out before us. Notice this. Watch this. Watch this. You don't want to miss this. It says, the people of Israel were at this time loyal to God. And so long as they continued in obedience to his law, no power in earth or hell could what? What's that word right there? Isn't that interesting? So as long as they were obedient to the covenant relationship, there's no power that could come against them and dominate them. That's why when you see the book of Revelation, the church is symbolized as riding on a white horse, conquering and to conquer. No one's able to stand against them because the church is in a pure covenant relationship with God. They're depending upon the blood. They are united with that high priest in heaven. They're strength in the sanctuary. But Satan says, I must figure out a way to short circuit the power of the church. So what does he do? Watch this, my friends. Notice here, in this quotation, Great Controversy, page 42, paragraph 1, is dealing with the church of Smyrna, okay? In the book of Revelation, church of Smyrna. Notice the highlighted part. It says, the sufferings which they endured brought Christians nearer to one another and to their Redeemer. Their living example and dying testimony were a constant witness for the truth. And were least expected, the subjects of Satan were leaving his service and enlisting under the banner of Christ. So the church is going forward, conquering and to conquer. Now watch this. Pay attention. Satan therefore laid his plans to war more successfully against the government of God by planting his banner where? Where did he plant his banner? Now, mind you, before this, everything Satan did was paganism. Paganism, paganism, paganism. Now, he switches his mode because it's not working anymore. The church is caught on. They're following Jesus. They're going all the way with the Lord. He says, well, I got to switch my game plan. If the followers of Christ could be deceived and led to displease God, then their strength, fortitude, and firmness would fail, and they would fall an easy prey. Now, this is applicable to a large prophetic timeline, right? But I'm, I don't want to necessarily just focus on that. I want to make this practical. Is there anything in your life where you're playing with something that God said don't play with? I, it could be a small. I don't, I don't care what it is. We're told in the steps of Christ that one cherished sin neutralizes the power of the gospel. Now, do you understand what the power of the gospel? Let me, let me pause for a moment and just do a little commercial on the power of the gospel. 
the power of the gospel, according to Romans chapter 6, it is resurrection power. In fact, if you don't believe me, go with me to Romans chapter 6. I want to read it to you because there's power in the word itself. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we, which are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Watch this. Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so should we walk out. Wait a second. So you're telling me that the Christian, when he walks in a Christian life, is really living under resurrection power? That's why Peter could walk on water. Had any man ever walked on water before Peter walked on water? Only Jesus. So Peter, did he have any natural ability in his own legs have special buoyancy? Any floating devices? It's resurrection power that makes a man a Christian. It's resurrection power that makes a man or a woman able to walk in a sin-filled world and not give themselves over to those sins that this world is so happy to be a part of. That's why we are called to be separate, my friends. You understand that once you link up like Achan did and take from that Babylonish garment and you call it a goodly Babylonish garment. Once you take that goodly Babylonish garment, the nation of Israel is weakened. So when they go do their evangelistic series, when they could have won 3,000, they only win two. Because the church is still taken from Babylon. They're still taking the things of this earth. They're still taking the educational system of this earth. Still taking the medical education of this world. They're still taking everything. Why are we taking everything from the earth? This earth is garbage. It's nothing. Have you not seen the results of man's own intelligence? Have you not seen it? Don't you have enough of it? Our wisdom, our strength is found in inspiration. And as long as we follow inspiration, we are safe. The moment we deviate from inspiration, we find ourselves under the thumb of the devil. I hope you hear me. I hope you're still my friend, you know. When the church compromises, they lose their strength. And it goes on to say, because I just want to put it here before you, and I'm running out of time. It says, idolaters were led to receive a part of the Christian faith while they rejected other essential truths. They professed to accept Jesus as the Son of God and to believe in his death and resurrection, but they had no conviction of sin. and felt no need for repentance or the change of heart. With some concessions on their part, they proposed that Christians should make concessions that all might unite on the platform of belief in Christ. That's what's happened in the olden times. Well, that's what's happening in the present time. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm going to pass this one. I want to get to this quotation. Let me pass that. Let me get to this quotation. It says, Great Controversy, page 50, paragraph 1. Watch what it says. This compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the development of the man of sin foretold in prophecy as opposing and exalting himself above God. Now watch. That gigantic system of false religion 
is a masterpiece of Satan's power, a monument of his efforts to seat himself upon the throne to rule the earth according to his will. So here's my question. Why does this say, why does the quotation say that the compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the man of sin? I began to think. And I began to meditate on this concept. I said to myself, oh, I understand, Father. The reason why the papal power came into existence is because the church compromised its position with you. The papacy, listen to me, I've never said this in America, so I'm going to say it in America, in a large gathering like this. The papacy is rising to power because the church has failed to do what it's supposed to do. Remember I told you? The thing that have been is that which shall be? Remember Babylon? Why did Babylon come for the Solomon's temple? Because the church compromised. Why does pagan Rome come and take out the Jewish nation? Because the Jewish nation doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Why does the papacy come into existence? Because the church says, look, oh, it would be so nice when famous people come in that we put them on the pulpit and we feel so cool because the politicians are now Seventh-day Adventists instead of teaching the politician and the actor and the famous person about what we really believe. We give them positions of influence. We lower the standard. And when the church seeks to be popular with the world, it puts itself in a position to allow for the power to dominate the people of God. Now, I I read that. I said, Father, is that in the Bible? Go to the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, and then we're going to read Daniel 8. Watch this, my friends. Father, please help me make it plain. In Daniel chapter 7... Daniel chapter 7, watch my friends. What I'm telling you is of the most urgent and serious principle that you need to learn to understand. Because if we don't understand that any compromise with sin puts us in a vulnerable position to be dominated by the enemy, when this crisis comes, you're going to know, I'm not supposed to go to church on Sunday. I'm not supposed to eat this. I'm not supposed to do that. But you'll find yourself doing it anyway because you have no strength. Daniel chapter 7. Notice what the Bible says. Oh, I wish I could spend more time here, my friends. Daniel chapter 7. Notice what the Bible says. We're going to begin reading at verse number 20. And we know who this fourth kingdom is. Verse 20 says, And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other that came up, before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld... And the same horn made war with the saints. And what is that word? And what? Wait a second. That's not supposed to happen. That verse is not supposed to be in the Bible. That little horn is not supposed to prevail against the people of God. That's why the Bible puts it seven times in Scripture, seven times it highlights the 42 months, three and a half times, 1,260 years. It highlights it for the people of God to pay attention to the time frame. Question, and again, because my time is running out, question, three and a half times, is there anywhere else in the Bible where three and a half is used against the church of God? Anywhere else in the Bible? Elijah. How long did it not rain? How long did it not rain? 
Three and a half years. Please pay close attention. For three and a half years, for 1260 years, the church was without the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was dry, my friends. No power. Therefore, this power, the papal power, is able to prevail against the people of God because the people of God have compromised on their covenant relationship with the God of heaven. But wait, wait, wait. I want you to see it. Go with me to Daniel chapter 8. Look at verse number 12. Because I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, I want to see it in the Bible. I want to see what you said right here. The compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the development of the man of sin. Watch what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 8 and looking at verse number 12. And again, because I don't have all the time in the world to break down the verse in all its pieces, you're going to have to trust what I say and then go back and see what I'm talking about, whether it's true or not. Verse 12 says, and an host was given him. Talking about the papal power. It was given to the papal power. Why? Against the daily... By reason of what, my friends? So the papacy receives an army or a host because of transgression, sin. The church compromised. Therefore, the papacy rises in ascendancy. When it rises in ascendancy, the church now for 1,260 years is without power. And mind you, in fact... Just so you know that I'm not making this up. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Notice here what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 11, talking about the two witnesses. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 5. It says, if any man will hurt them, talking about the two witnesses, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut what, my friends? To shut what? Heaven that it rained not in the days of their prophecy. Well, how long did the two witnesses prophesy? Go back up. Revelation 11, look at verse number 3. The Bible says, And I gave power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. For one thousand two hundred and sixty years, these two witnesses said there would be no rain, which means the church had compromised its position, no longer united with the heavenly sanctuary. It has no power, thus the papacy prevails against them. Do you understand that? In fact, one more point. Revelation chapter 13, look at verse number 10. Revelation 13, verse 10. We're studying right now, friends. We, we need to get back in our Bibles. Revelation chapter 13, look at verse number 10. Notice what the Bible says. Spill talking about this time frame. It says, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Notice what it says. Here is the what, my friends? Here is the patience. And what else? Faith. This is directly connected with the 42 months or 1,260 years. Please look at that verse and directly contrast it with the verse that highlights our time. The Bible says in Revelation 14, verse 12. Notice what it says. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that do what, my friends? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of what? So watch. So they have patience. They have faith. But what do they have in addition? What do they have in addition? The commandments. 
This is the words of the covenant. It tells me that those who live in the end time, those who are living during the final crisis, those who are standing true to God when all the world is against them, have entered into an everlasting covenant, and God says, as if he's boasting, (laughs) here's the patience of the saints. He's bragging right now. Here they are. Here are they that have entered into a covenant relationship with me. Here are they that I have come so close to that the world cannot remove them out of my hands. So let me recap and stop talking. The church received power on the day of Pentecost. Satan says, I can't have a church that has power. So I have to create a system that separates them from the heavenly sanctuary. The church then, because it's separated from that heavenly sanctuary, loses strength and is now prevailed against. But I love this verse. You're still in Daniel 7. Go to Daniel 7. This is my last verse. Look at Daniel 7. And then we'll finish this up tonight. Daniel 7. Notice what the Bible says. Verse 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until. That's one of my favorite words in all the Bible. In other words, God says there is a limit. There is a cutoff point. So this horn prevails until. Until what? Until the ancient of days came. That's one. And judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. We're going to talk about that. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Do you know, my friends, we've entered into that time of the until. But if the church does not by faith follow Jesus and what he's doing in the heavenly sanctuary, we cannot benefit We need to know with intelligence what he's doing. The disciples knew. They said, Lord, we want to go with you to the kingdom. Jesus said, you can't go with me, but you need to wait here for the promise. The Holy Spirit is going to be with you and is going to be inside of you. So I want to ask you a question. Same question I asked you already, but I'm going to ask you again. Is the Spirit of God inside of you? Does Jesus have full control of your life? Is there any small thing that you're holding on to? For one cherished sin neutralizes the power of the gospel, my friends. I don't think anything is worth giving up Jesus. I don't think anything is worth giving up the the love of the one who gave his life for us. The one that is divine, holy, pure, who receives the adoration of angels, gave up all of that to come be with us. I don't think anything in this world is worth giving up for him. Satan has done nothing for us. So my question is, Does Jesus have your whole heart? Does the Holy Spirit have full control? Let's go to our knees and ask Jesus to help us, to search our hearts.
in the silence of the moment, ask God to search your heart and see is there anything that you yourself are holding on to that is hindering his power, that's hindering his presence from dwelling inside your holy temple. Father in heaven, I sense your presence in this place. Father, I always wonder why you love us so much. We are so hard headed, so stubborn. We are so self righteous, Father. We are so arrogant, we're proud, we're liars, we're thieves, we're boasters, we're infeminate, Father. We, we just need help, Lord. And Father, we throw ourselves at your feet for there is nowhere else to go. There's no other help, there's no other comfort, there's no other friend. But we come before you asking, Father, for the outpouring of your spirit and for you to show us, Lord, what is hindering that spirit from dwelling in each and every one of us. I know for me, Lord, it's pride and arrogancy, Lord. Help me, Father. Help us, Lord. We've been here so long. The world seems so alluring, Father. Please break the spell, Father, that binds us, Father. Please give us the victory. Help us to reach out in faith, claiming what you've already promised to us, Father. For I know, Lord, that you could do abundantly more than whatever we ask or think. We love you, Lord. We ask that you teach us to love you more than anything else in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.